Chapter One, Part Four, Book Two of Confession of a Child of the Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confession of a Child of the Century by Alfred de Musset. Translated by Kendall Warren. Book Two, Part Four. Chapter One. The Thorns of Love. I have now to recount what happened to my love, and the change that took place in me. What reason can I give for it? None, except as I repeat the story and as I say, it is the truth. For two days, neither more nor less, I was Madame Pearson's lover. One fine night I set out and traversed the road that led to her house. I was feeling so well in body and soul that I leaped for joy and extended my arms to heaven. I found her at the top of the stairway leaning on the railing, a lighted candle beside her. She was waiting for me, and when she saw me ran to meet me. She showed me how she had changed her coiffure which had displeased me, and told me how she had passed the day arranging her hair to suit my taste, how she had taken down a villainous black picture-frame that had offended my eye, how she had renewed the flowers. She recounted all she had done since she had known me, how she had seen me suffer and how she had suffered herself, how she had thought of leaving the country, of fleeing from her love, how she had employed every precaution against me, how she had sought advice from her aunt, from Merkinson, and from the curé, how she had vowed to herself that she would die rather than yield, and how all that had been dissipated by a single word of mine, a glance, an incident and with every confession a kiss. She said that whatever I saw in her room that pleased my taste, whatever bagatelle on her table attracted my attention, she would give me. That whatever she did in the future, in the morning, in the evening, at any hour, I should regulate as I pleased. That the judgments of the world did not concern her. That if she had appeared to care for them, it was only to send me away. But that she wished to be happy and close her ears that she was thirty years of age and had not longed to be loved by me. "'And you will love me a long time? Are those fine words with which you have beguiled me true? And then loving reproaches, because I had been late in coming to her, that she had put on her slippers in order that I might see her foot, but that she was no longer beautiful, that she could wish she were, that she had been at fifteen. She went here and there, silly with love, rosy with joy, and she did not know what to imagine, what to say or do, in order to give herself and all that she had. I was lying on the sofa. I felt, at every word she spoke, a bad hour of my past life slipping away from me. I watched the star of love rising in my sky, and it seemed to me I was like a tree filled with sap that shakes off its dry leaves in order to attire itself in new foliage. She sat down at the piano and told me she was going to play an air by Stradella. More than all else I love sacred music, and that more so which she had sung for me a number of times gave me great pleasure. "'Yes,' she said when she had finished, "'but you are very much mistaken. The air is mine, and I have made you believe it was Stradella's.' "'It is yours?' "'Yes, and I told you it was by Stradella in order to see what you would say of it.' I never play my own music when I happen to compose any, but I wanted to try it with you, and you see it has succeeded since you were deceived. 
What a monstrous machine is man! What could be more innocent? A bright child might have adopted that ruse to surprise his teacher. She laughed heartily the while, but I felt a strange coldness, as if a dark cloud had settled on me. My countenance changed. "'What is the matter?' she asked. "'Are you ill?' "'It is nothing. Play that air again.' While she was playing, I walked up and down the room. I passed my hand over my forehead, as if to brush away the fog. I stamped my foot, shrugged my shoulders at my own madness. Finally I sat down on a cushion which had fallen to the floor. She came to me. The more I struggled with the spirit of darkness which had seized me, the thicker the night that gathered around my head. "'Verily,' I said, "'you lie so well. What, that air is yours? Is it possible you can lie so fluently?' She looked at me with an air of astonishment. "'What is it?' she asked. Unspeakable anxiety was depicted on her face. Surely she could not believe me fool enough to reproach her for such a harmless bit of pleasantry. She did not see anything serious in that sadness which I felt. But the more trifling the cause, the greater the surprise. At first she thought I, too, must be joking, but when she saw me growing paler every moment, as if about to faint, she stood with open lips and bent body, looking like a statue. "'God of heaven!' she cried. "'Is it possible?' You smile, perhaps, reader, at this page. I who write it still shudder as I think of it. Misfortunes have their symptoms as well as diseases, and there is nothing so terrible at sea as a little black point on the horizon. However, my dear Bridget drew a little round table into the centre of the room, and brought out some supper. She had prepared it herself, and I did not drink a drop that was not first born to her lips. The blue light of day, piercing through the curtains, illumined her charming face and tender eyes. She was tired, and allowed her head to fall on my shoulder with a thousand terms of endearment. I could not struggle against such charming abandon, and my heart expanded with joy. I believed I had rid myself of the bad dream that had just tormented me, and I begged her pardon for giving way to a sudden impulse which I myself did not understand. My friend, I said from the bottom of my heart, I am very sorry that I unjustly reproached you for a piece of innocent badinage. But if you love me, never lie to me, even in the smallest matter, for a lie is an abomination to me and I cannot endure it. I told her I would remain until she was asleep. I saw her close her beautiful eyes and heard her murmur something in her sleep as I bent over and kissed her adieu. Then I went away with a tranquil heart, promising myself that I would henceforth enjoy my happiness, and allow nothing to disturb it. But the next day Bridget said to me, as if quite by chance, I have a large book in which I have written my thoughts, everything that has occurred to my mind, and I want you to see what I said of you the first day I met you. We read together what concerned me, to which we added a hundred foolish comments, after which I began to turn the leaves in a mechanical way. A phrase written in capital letters caught my eye on one of the pages I was turning. I distinctly saw some words that were insignificant enough, and I was about to read the rest when Bridget stopped me and said, Do not read that. I threw the book on the table. Why, certainly not, I said. I did not think what I was doing. Do you still take things seriously, she asked, smiling, doubtless seeing my malady coming on again. Take the book. I want you to read it. 
The book lay on the table within easy reach, and I did not take my eyes from it. I seemed to hear a voice whispering in my ear, and I thought I saw, grimacing before me with his glacial smile and dry face, Desgenais. "'What are you doing here, Desgenais?' I asked, as if I really saw him. He looked as he did that evening, when he leaned over my table and unfolded to me his catechism of vice. I kept my eyes on the book, and I felt vaguely stirring in my memory some forgotten words of the past. The spirit of doubt hanging over my head had injected into my veins a drop of poison. The vapour mounted to my head, and I staggered like a drunken man. What secret was Bridget concealing from me? I knew very well that I had only to bend over and open the book. But at what place? How could I recognize the leaf on which my eye had chanced to fall? My pride, moreover, would not permit me to take the book. Was it indeed pride? Oh, God, I said to myself with a frightful sense of sadness, is the past a spectre? And can it come out of its tomb? Ah, wretch that I am, can I never love? All my ideas of contempt for women, all the phrases of mocking fatuity which I had repeated as a schoolboy his lesson, suddenly came to my mind, and strange to say, while formerly I did not believe in making a parade of them, now it seemed that they were real, or at least that they had been. I had known Madame Pearson four months, but I knew nothing of her past life, and had never questioned her about it. I had yielded to my love for her with confidence and without reservation. I found a sort of pleasure in taking her just as she was, for just what she seemed, while suspicion and jealousy are so foreign to my nature that I was more surprised at feeling them toward Bridget than she was in discovering them in me. Never in my first love nor in the affairs of daily life have I been distrustful, but on the contrary bold and frank, suspecting nothing. I had to see my mistress betray me before my eyes before I would believe that she could deceive me. Desgenais himself, while preaching to me after his manner, joked me about the ease with which I could be duped. The story of my life was an incontestable proof that I was credulous rather than suspicious, and when the words in that book suddenly struck me, it seemed to me I felt a new being within me, a sort of unknown self. My reason revolted against the feeling, and I did not dare ask whither all this was leading me. But the suffering I had endured, the memory of the perfidy that I had witnessed, the frightful cure I had imposed on myself, the opinions of my friends, the corrupt life I had led, the sad truths I had learned, as well as those that I had unconsciously surmised during my sad experience, ending in debauchery, contempt of love, abuse of everything, that is what I had in my heart, although I did not suspect it. And at the moment when life and hope were again being born within me, all these furies that were being atrophied by time seized me by the throat, and cried that they were yet alive. I bent over and opened the book, then immediately closed it and threw it on the table. Bridget was looking at me. In her beautiful eyes was neither wounded pride nor anger, nothing but tender solicitude as if I were ill. "'Do you think I have secrets?' she asked, embracing me. "'No,' I replied. "'I know nothing except that you are beautiful, and that I would die loving you.' When I returned home to dinner I said to La Rive, "'Who is Madame Pearson?' He looked at me in astonishment. 
"'You have lived here many years,' I continued. "'You ought to know better than I. What do they say of her here? What do they think of her in the village? What kind of life did she lead before I knew her? Whom did she receive as her friends?' "'In faith, sir, I have never seen her do otherwise than she does every day, that is to say, walk in the valley, play piquet with her aunt, and visit the poor. The peasants call her Bridget La Rose. I have never heard a word against her except that she goes through the woods alone at all hours of the day and night. But that is when engaged in charitable work. She is the ministering angel in the valley. As for those she receives, there are only the curé and Monsieur de Dalin during vacation. Who is this Monsieur de Dalin? He owns the chateau at the foot of the mountain on the other side. He only comes here for the chase. Is he young? Yes. Is he related to Madame Pearson? No, he was a friend of her husband. Has her husband been dead long? Five years on All Saints' Day. He was a worthy man. And has this Monsieur de Dalin paid court? To the widow, in faith, to tell the truth? He stopped, embarrassed. Well, will you answer me? Some say so, and some do not. I know nothing, and have seen nothing. And you just told me that they do not talk about her in the country? That is all they have said, and I supposed you knew that. In a word, yes or no? Yes, sir, I think so, at least. I arose from the table and walked down the road. Merkinson was there. I expected he would try to avoid me. On the contrary, he approached me. "'Sir,' he said, "'you exhibited signs of anger which it does not become a man of my character to resent. I wish to express my regret that I was charged to communicate a message which appeared so unwelcome.' I returned his compliment, supposing he would leave me at once, but he walked along at my side. Dalin, Dalin, I repeated between my teeth, who will tell me about Dalin? For La Rive had told me nothing except what a valet might learn. From whom had he learned it? From some servant or peasant? I must have some witness who had seen Dalin with Madame Pearson and who knew all about their relations. I could not get that Dalin out of my head, and not being able to talk to anyone else, I asked Merkinson about him. If Merkinson was not a bad man, he was either a fool or very shrewd. I have never known which. It is certain that he had reason to hate me, and that he had treated me as meanly as possible. Madame Pearson, who had the greatest friendship for the curé, had almost come to think equally well of the nephew. He was proud of it, and consequently jealous. It is not love alone that inspires jealousy. A favor, a kind word, a smile from a beautiful mouth may arouse some people to jealous rage. Merkinson appeared to be astonished. I was somewhat astonished myself. But who knows his own mind? At his first words I saw that the priest understood what I wanted to know, and had decided not to satisfy me. How does it happen that you have known Madame Pearson so long and so intimately, I think so at least, and have not met Monsieur de Dalin? but doubtless you have some reason unknown to me for inquiring about him to-day. All I can say is that, as far as I know, he is an honest man, kind and charitable. He was, like you, very intimate with Madame Pearson, 
He is fond of hunting and entertains handsomely. He and Madame Pearson were accustomed to devote much of their time to music. He punctually attended to his works of charity, and, when in the country, accompanied that lady on her rounds, just as you do. His family enjoys an excellent reputation at Paris. I used to find him with Madame Pearson whenever I called. His manners were excellent. As for the rest, I speak truly and frankly as becomes me when it concerns persons of his merit. I believe that he only comes here for the chase. He was a friend of her husband. He is said to be rich and very generous. But I know nothing about it except that— With what tortured phrases was this dull tormentor teasing me? I was ashamed to listen to him yet not daring to ask a single question or interrupt his vile insinuations. I was alone on the promenade. The poisoned arrow of suspicion had entered my heart. I did not know whether I felt more of anger or of sorrow. The confidence with which I had abandoned myself to my love for Bridget had been so sweet and so natural that I could not bring myself to believe that so much happiness had been built upon an illusion. That sentiment of credulity which had attracted me to her seemed a proof that she was worthy. Was it possible that these four months of happiness were but a dream? But after all, I thought, that woman has yielded too easily. Was there not deception in that pretended anxiety to have me leave the country? Is she not just like all the rest? Yes, that is the way they all do. They attempt to escape in order to experience the happiness of being pursued. It is the feminine instinct. Was it not she who confessed her love by her own act, at the very moment I had decided that she would never be mine? Did she not accept my arm the first day I met her? If Delin has been her lover, he probably is still. There is a certain sort of liaison that has neither beginning nor end. When chance ordains a meeting, it is resumed. When parted, it is forgotten. If that man comes here this summer, she will probably see him without breaking with me. Who is this aunt? What mysterious life is this that has charity for its cloak, this liberty that cares nothing for opinion? May they not be adventurers, these two women, with their little house, their prudence, and their caution, which enable them to impose on people so easily? Assuredly, for all I know, I have fallen into an affair of gallantry when I thought I was engaged in a romance. But what can I do? There is no one here who can help me except the priest, who does not care to tell me what he knows, and his uncle, who will say still less. Who will save me? How can I learn the truth?" Thus spoke jealousy. Thus, forgetting so many tears and all that I had suffered, I had come at the end of two days to a point where I was tormenting myself with the idea that Bridget had yielded too easily. Thus, like all who doubt, I brushed aside sentiment and reason to dispute with facts, to attach myself to the letter and dissect my love. While absorbed in these reflections I was slowly approaching Madame Pearson's. I found the gate open, and as I entered the garden I saw a light in the kitchen. I thought of questioning the servant. I stepped to the window. A feeling of horror rooted me to the spot. The servant was an old woman, thin and wrinkled and bent a common deformity in people who have worked in the fields. I found her shaking a cooking utensil over a filthy sink. A dirty candle fluttered in her trembling hand, 
About her were pots, kettles, and dishes, the remains of dinner that a dog sniffed at, from time to time, as though ashamed. A warm, nauseating odor emanated from the reeking walls. When the old woman caught sight of me she smiled in a confidential way. She had seen me take leave of her mistress. I shuddered as I thought what I had come to seek in a spot so well suited to my ignoble purpose. I fled from that old woman as from jealousy personified, and as if the stench of her cooking had come from my heart. Bridget was at the window watering her well-beloved flowers. A child of one of her neighbors was lying in a cradle at her side, and she was gently rocking the cradle with her disengaged hand. The child's mouth was full of bonbons and in gurgling eloquence it was addressing an incomprehensible apostrophe to its nurse. I sat down near her and kissed the child on its fat cheeks, as if to imbibe some of its innocence. Bridget accorded me a timid greeting. She could see her troubled image in my eyes. For my part I avoided her glance. The more I admired her beauty and her air of candor, the more I was convinced that such a woman was either an angel or a monster of perfidy. I forced myself to recall each one of Merkinson's words, and I confronted, so to speak, the man's insinuations with her presence and her face. She is very beautiful, I said to myself, and very dangerous if she knows how to deceive. But I will fathom her, and I will sound her heart, and she shall know who I am. My dear, I said after a long silence, I have just given a piece of advice to a friend who consulted me. He is an honest young man, and he writes me that a woman he loves has another lover. He asks me what he ought to do. What reply did you make? Two questions. Is she pretty? Do you love her? If you love her, forget her. If she is pretty and you do not love her, keep her for your pleasure. There will always be time to quit her, if it is merely a matter of beauty, and one is worth as much as another. Hearing me speak thus, Bridget put down the child she was holding, and sat down at the other end of the room. There was no light in the room. The moon, which was shining on the spot where she had been standing, threw a shadow over the sofa on which she was now seated. The words I had uttered were so heartless, so cruel, that I was dazed myself, and my heart was filled with bitterness. The child in its cradle began to cry. Then all three of us were silent while a cloud passed over the moon. A servant entered the room with a light and carried the child away. I arose, Bridget also, but she suddenly placed her hand on her heart and fell to the floor. I hastened to her side. She had not lost consciousness and begged me not to call anyone. She explained that she was subject to violent palpitation of the heart, and had been troubled by fainting spells from her youth, that there was no danger and no remedy. I kneeled beside her. She sweetly opened her arms. I raised her head and placed it on my shoulder. "'Ah, my friend,' she said, "'I pity you.' "'Listen to me,' I whispered in her ear. "'I am a wretched fool, but I can keep nothing on my heart. Who is this Monsieur de Delin, who lives on the mountain and comes to see you?' She appeared astonished to hear me mention that name. "'Delin?' she replied. He was my husband's friend. She looked at me as if to inquire, Why do you ask? It seemed to me that her face wore a grieved expression. I bit my lips. If she wants to deceive me, I thought, I was foolish to question her. 
Bridget rose with difficulty. She took her fan and began to walk up and down the room. She was breathing hard. I had wounded her. She was absorbed in thought, and we exchanged two or three glances that were almost cold. She stepped to her desk, opened it, drew out a package of letters tied together with a ribbon, and threw it at my feet without a word. But I was looking neither at her nor at her letters. I had just thrown a stone into the abyss, and was listening to the echoes. For the first time offended pride was depicted on Bridget's face. There was no longer either anxiety or pity in her eyes, and just as I had come to feel myself other than I had ever been, so I saw in her a woman I did not know. "'Read that,' she said finally. I stepped up to her and took her hand. "'Read that! Read that!' she repeated, in freezing tones. I took the letters. At that moment I felt so persuaded of her innocence that I was seized with remorse. "'You remind me,' she said, "'that I owe you the story of my life. Sit down, and you shall learn it. You will open these drawers, and you will read all that I have written and all that has been written to me.' She sat down and motioned to me to a chair. I saw that she found it difficult to speak. She was pale as death, her voice constrained, her throat swollen. "'Bridget! Bridget!' I cried, in the name of heaven, do not speak. God is my witness I was not born such as you see me. During my life I have been neither suspicious nor distrustful. I have been undone. My heart has been seared by the treachery of others. A frightful experience has led me to the very brink of the precipice, and for a year I have seen nothing but evil here below. God is my witness that up to this day I did not believe myself capable of playing the ignoble role I have assumed, the meanest role of all, that of a jealous lover. God is my witness that I love you, and that you are the only one in the world who can cure me of the past. I have had to do, up to this time, with women who deceived me, or who were unworthy of love. I have led the life of a libertine. I bear on my heart certain marks that will never be effaced. Is it my fault if calumny and base suggestion, to-day planted in a heart whose fibres were still trembling with pain and ready to assimilate all that resembles sorrow, have driven me to despair? I have just heard the name of a man I have never met, of whose existence I was ignorant. I have been given to understand that there has been between you and him a certain intimacy, which proves nothing. I do not intend to question you. I have suffered from it, I have confessed to you, and I have done you an irreparable wrong. But rather than consent to what you propose, I will throw it all in the fire. Ah, my friend, do not degrade me. Do not attempt to justify yourself. Do not punish me for suffering. How could I, in the bottom of my heart, suspect you of deceiving me? No, you are beautiful, and you are true. A single glance of yours, Bridget, tells me more than words could utter, and I am content. If you knew what horrors, what monstrous deceit the man who stands before you has seen, if you knew how he has been treated, how they have mocked at all that is good, how they have taken pains to teach him all that leads to doubt, to jealousy, to despair. Alas, alas, my dear mistress, if you knew whom you love, do not reproach me, but rather pity me. I must forget that other beings than you exist. Who can know through what frightful trials, through what pitiless suffering I have passed? I did not expect this. I did not anticipate this moment. Since you have become mine, I realize what I have done. 
I have felt, in kissing you, that my lips were not, like yours, unsullied. In the name of heaven, help me live. God made me a better man than the one you see before you." Bridget held out her hands and caressed me tenderly. She begged me to tell her all that had led to this sad scene. I spoke of what I had learned from La Rive, but did not dare confess that I had interviewed Merkinson. She insisted that I listen to her explanation. Monsieur de Delain had loved her, but he was a man of frivolous disposition, dissipated and inconstant. She had given him to understand that, not wishing to remarry, she could only request that he drop the role of suitor, and he had yielded to her wishes with good grace. But his visits had become more rare since that time, until now they had ceased altogether. She drew from the bundle a certain letter which she showed me, the date of which was recent. I could not help blushing, as I found in it the confirmation of all she had said. She assured me that she pardoned me, and exacted a promise that in the future I would promptly tell her of any cause I might have to suspect her. Our treaty was sealed with a kiss, and when I left her we had both forgotten that Monsieur de Delain ever existed. End of chapter 1, part 4, book 2. Recording by Bill Borst.